Welcome to the Psychology for Theology series. Theology is reflection on God and God's relationship to all things, but especially to human beings. Psychology is the scientific study of the thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors of those human beings. But usually these domains are siloed. Blueprint 1543 takes an integrated approach. Because in order to live full lives, solve big problems, and serve the culture, we'll need to draw on many different domains of knowledge. But as intellectual as some of this work is, we don't want these how, when, and why questions to feel disembodied and out there. We think this work matters because it actually makes a difference in people's lives, including yours. This is an eight-part series with a free downloadable workbook, available in the show notes. We hope you enjoy. This project was made possible through the support of a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. Before we jump into my conversation with Laird Edmund today, we're going to hear a little bit from Justin Barrett to understand what is meant by ritual or spiritual ritual from the perspective of folks who study it scientifically. Laird is great. He's a lot of fun. He's a good person to go to church with, too, and to worship beside. He knows how to worship. It's great. Oh, yeah. I caught him off guard once. This is an embarrassing thing about him. It's, maybe it's a confession of me, but I think it might have been the first time he visited me in Southern California, and my wife, Sherry, and I took him out for lunch, and we were given wrapped straws, and so... Yes, I blew my straw across the table at him, shot him in the chest with the straw wrapper. And he was both surprised and delighted. I think Sherry said something to the effect of, one thing about Justin is you're always going out to dinner with your little brother or something like that. But Laird thought it was great because he was like, oh, that's the kind of relationship we have. Excellent. This is where we need to be. So <laughs> You're like... Oh, my, my inner child is safe here. I can That's right. <laughs> let right. that 12-year-old so, boy within me roam free. <laughs> and he yeah. definitely has a 12-year-old boy in him that wants uh. to roam. So. <laughs> yeah, that's delightful. So Laird is very interested in ritual as a extension of his strong interest in cognitive science of religion, which has been your playground for most of your career. So I imagine definitely a few things popped out in this conversation for you. Rituals, well, they've been defined a lot of different ways, but in the scientific study of religion these days, when people are talking about rituals, usually what they mean is something like behaviors that are somehow socially stipulated is one of the terms that's often used, or that is the group, the community helps decide what they are, how they're performed. You don't just invent them yourself. So personal rituals is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about sort of socially, culturally, conventional kinds of behaviors. So that's one thing is they've got that dimension to them. Rituals are also actions that are observable in some way. I'll throw that in there. What do you mean observable? Well, there are lots of actions we do that nobody can see. Like I can pray silently to myself and no one else can see what I'm doing. They look like, is he sleeping or is he praying? We can't tell. So usually that doesn't count as a ritual. Rituals are observable, socially stipulated or somehow conventionalized behaviors. And part of that stipulation is that there's a sequence of actions that is kind of predefined. It is usually characterized by a certain amount of rigidity or formality. You can't just change this, that, or the other, right? People have the intuition that, no, no, there's a right way to do these ritual things. They tend to be embedded in a bigger system of meaning. They don't stand all by themselves. 
but they grab a hold of, say, religious or other cultural ideas to help inform them. And maybe what's most interesting is they typically have features that are a little hard to understand from just an intuitive causation sort of way. That is, why these actions are stipulated the way they are to bring about those consequences isn't immediately obvious. They're not transparently obvious. Whereas why it is that I, I don't know, tie my shoes the way I do, you can kind of look at it and go, oh, I see what you're doing there. Why it is that you stick your foot in like that and then you tug on your laces and then you put some kind of knot in your laces. It kind of causally makes sense. Researchers in this area talk about rituals as being causally opaque. It's hard to see how we got from these actions to these consequences. Why is it that sticking rings on people's fingers and saying a few words makes them bonded together for life as married people? It's not obvious that rings do that. They have this power that does that sort of thing. Or why it is that in lots of cultures that if you, I don't know, put the tea leaves in from the water in a certain way and swish them around just right. And then if you pour them out or read them in some way, that tells you the future. Like that. Or throw the chicken bones on the ground in the following way and you can divine what's going to happen. It's not obvious why the chicken bones need to be thrown on the ground in that way. Causally opaque. So those are kind of the features of rituals. And that's helped set them apart from just sort of ordinary ceremonies or other kinds of actions. And they could be religious or not religious. Yeah. So just clarify. So would you not even call a private kind of spiritual practice a ritual in ter- for, I guess, for scientific purposes or, or whatever, for building classification? Yeah, usually they're not. Okay. They may be practices. They may be disciplines. They, but mm-hmm. there's at least some effort in this, in the scientific study of ritual to circumscribe the space a little more tightly so we know what it is we're talking about, separated from other kinds of activities that are, they're worth studying, but let's save that word ritual for in a more precise way. And then adding that label religious and further specifies because these rituals, right? They can, they can be religious or not. We see all kinds of secular rituals. One example of a, a secular ritual is when people rise and remove their hats for the singing of the national anthem. Well, why do you need to be standing up? What's with the taking off of hats? What's that got to do with? I mean, it's not obvious what hat removal has to do with. Well, it's a sign of respect. Ah, there's that sort of building it into a broader system of meaning. It's not just any flag. It's a flag with these certain kinds of features. Ah, there's some symbolism and meaning and so forth. But we wouldn't say that's a religious ritual necessarily. Sure. What what often sort of pushes something to be considered a religious ritual in these scientific treatments is some kind of representation in the action structure that there's a superhuman agent present. And that sounded very vague and mysterious, but usually it goes like this, that someone in the action is representing divine agency somehow, or an object is representing divine presence somehow. So in the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion or Eucharist or whatever you want to call it, right? The elements are representing the presence of the divine. In a traditional wedding ceremony, usually a pastor or priest is representing the presence of the divine. When Catholics cross themselves with holy water when they enter a church, well, the holy water has been blessed. And so it's representing 
the presence of the divine. And not just anybody can bless the holy water, but somebody who had been ordained through a previous ritual, religious ritual. And so you see there are these systems of religious rituals that then enable other religious rituals to take place because the right elements then are making some kind of connection to divinity. And because of that, then they have certain properties of certain power behind them. At least those are our intuitions. Because if the God does something, is acting, then this isn't just ordinary day-to-day kind of mundane stuff. And especially if the God is in that agent's position, right, is the doing so that usually this is a priest or holy person who is then initiating the action, is acting upon someone or something. Those feel like, oh, the God's doing something here. That is probably really important. It probably needs to be surrounded by signs of the importance of this event. So sensory pageantry, smells, sounds, unusual adornment, and so forth. And the consequences of that action by and large, are thought to be permanent. Because when the god acts, that's for good, because they've got this sort of superpower. That's Lawson and Macaulay's theory of religious ritual, Tom Lawson, Robert Macaulay. But we've Mm -hmm. got empirical evidence cross-culturally that, yeah, these predictions do seem to bear out most of the time in religious rituals. Yeah, it makes me think about how you mentioned earlier that there's like this instinct that there's a right way to do these things, and you don't don't do it a different way or a wrong way. And some of the most serious disagreements and conflicts in church history were around sacraments and doing sacraments differently was like a big deal. And even today, especially in the more high church denominations, there will be like my dad's part of a liberal Lutheran denomination. And on the social issues, they're very open and there's a wide range of like what they think about that. But only one person can serve communion. And if that person's not there, you don't do communion. There's still like very strict guidelines around the church's rituals. I just find that part of it really interesting. Yeah. And one of the reasons why, at least from this theoretical perspective, one of the reasons why you would have that kind of rigidity in these religious rituals and that it changes across traditions is precisely because in your high church Christian traditions, there are more honest to goodness religious rituals as opposed to rituals or ritualized ceremonies that don't have an appeal to God's agency anywhere in the structure. So low church Christianity, even communion, well, it's a memorial service and the elements actually don't embody the presence of the divine. They remind us of something Jesus did. Well, then under at least Lawson and Macaulay's theory, it's not a religious ritual proper. strangely enough. So you would expect that there's actually a lot more latitude with what you can and can't do there because, well, the God isn't present. You're not acting on the God in a particular kind of way. Whereas in Lutheranism and Catholicism, no, 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 no. The presence is very important. Yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you better do that part right. That corresponds, yeah. 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 Because in the low church I was a part of back in LA, kind of the very just sort of an evangelical sort of a Sort of a Hillsong-y vibe, if that means anything to anyone. <laughs> but, but yeah, a once a month during a communion Sunday, just a memorial, like you said. So just the elements are out, uh, pre-COVID, obviously. The elements are just out on a table during during the closing worship. And anyone can walk up and take some. No, no one hands it to you. There's no guarding it. Like, anybody can take it. You know, I'm not saying this is good or bad. It just was, like, very free and just like, oh, yes, here it is. It's out. See, it's on the table. <laughs> Do what you will with it. 
do whatever you want. <laughs> so it's really interesting, the diversity. Yeah, and in super egalitarian kind of churches where you don't really have clergy even, well, then you don't have anybody who could specially represent the divine. Sure, sure, sure. sure. So you might even think, uh, well, weddings start to look even pretty sort of flexible and loose and stuff. <laughs> like, yeah, we'll do yeah. it any way we want, really. Oh, yeah. Okay. But like the conversation with Laird, well, points out, it's like these things start to correlate to the group identity. And that's another, probably another reason that people feel strongly about these things at a certain point. No, that's right. Our, our rituals help tell us who we are and they help form that group identity. They, even if they aren't rituals proper, our worship, for instance, can be the kinds of activities that lead to high degrees of trust and cooperation because they release endorphins or oxytocin or other sort of happy chemicals that bond us together through worship. And that has been experimentally demonstrated. If you sort of worship together, you do like each other a little bit more, which is nice to know. <laughs> yeah, Justin, I think this is correct, but this is making me wonder about cultures of less religiosity, like in, in certain countries where hardly anyone goes to church. There's still a high degree of like spirituality or different sorts of measurements for spirituality kind of go up. Is that is that true? Well, there's a lot of sort of definitional fuzziness around what, sure. what we well, see is that when uh, what you might think of as the conventional institutionalized religion goes down, you can see sometimes a corresponding increase in sort of non-standard forms of what you might call spirituality. So participation in the occult, for instance, has gone up in the UK as church attendance has gone down. What I think the way to interpret a lot of this is there's sort of a baseline drive that people have to make broader sense and meaning of their existence, their life. That's just sort of a natural part of being humans living in groups. And if we don't have or we, for one reason or another, feel uncomfortable with sort of the dominant institutionalized forms, we find others. To connect it to the conversation, I brought that up because it seems like you could see it like when we couldn't go to church during height of COVID lockdown. A lot of people were just, once we have less of that availability of those corporate rituals, those communal rituals together, people start to create these private rituals and meaning-making activities in their private lives. And I wonder how that changes the spiritual formation for people. And if there's stuff we miss out on, which I'm sure there is stuff we miss out on if we just switch to some sort of private spiritual practice. Yeah, I'm not aware of careful studies of that dynamic, but it's pretty easy to predict that that's going to be importantly different. There's going to be something missing. These rituals and other kinds of things, because they have such strong social deliverances on top of everything else, without those social deliverances, it's hard to imagine they're going to be comparable psychologically, certainly not socially, of course. Will they make the same kind of meaning? Well, Probably not. I mean, you almost think of it this way, that at least in many religious traditions, certainly within Christianity, Islam, Judaism, sort of the Abrahamic faiths and their cousins, this idea of submitting to divine will is a really important component. And the divine will is in some ways symbolized communally. 
by our submission to the rituals, these collective practices among rituals and other kinds of practices that the group has established as indicative of divine presence, divine action, and so forth. And saying, no, 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 thanks. I'll do my own thing on this. Puts the agency firmly on us as individuals. And so it's hard to see how that won't lead to a much, for a very different kind of faith. One that says, my, my sovereignty is actually more important than divine sovereignty. And I'm pretty individualistic kind of guy in some respects. I'm a nonconformist and, but <laughs> it sure looks like that's the way the psychology is going to go on this. Given how so, what social animals we are, it's pretty easy to argue that corporate spiritual, or even if you don't want to call them spiritual practices, I don't know, like community life is just so essential for being a healthy human being in all the dimensions of human wellness. And then also cross-referencing with the Pam conversation, you need those relationships like you're implying right now to be have some level of intimacy where you can truly be yourself, but also some level of accountability where somebody could say, I don't know if that's... You might be going astray here, or you might you maybe think God told you that, but maybe it's a mis- yeah, the community to kind right. of the community is part of that discernment process. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. I like that. You make me think too. It's I think the greater risk than I mean the COVID lockdowns and the sort of social isolation that took place there was it's pretty unusual and it was not going to last forever. It's already right disappearing. But what has been increasing over many decades, and as far as we can tell, it's going to keep increasing, is people living in larger and larger fluid social environments. And there's this sort of individualizing consequence of that as well. It's almost a boomerang effect, right? If the sort of natural environment that rituals developed in is in these cultural groups where, say, a wedding is symbolizing, is signaling to the group, hey, these two people are now joined together in a very special kind of way. And that's important. And it's maybe in a religious community before God. God is ordaining this union. That tells everybody, don't mess with it and support it. So, dudes, now is not the time to start flirting with the bride. This is, yeah, that is, she's off limits now. Let's be clear. We are broadcasting that. And the community coming around that and saying, yes, we understand this and support it. Or think of a rite of passage. Lots of traditions. Christianity doesn't have this much anymore, at least in Western Christianity. But there are these rites of passage where you're now an adult with the rights and privileges thereof. The ritual that you're going through says the gods see it. They're declaring you an adult with all the rights and responsibilities thereof. The community is participating in that. They see you now as an adult, and they're going to treat you that way. So everybody's ready. It marks the transition. Those are really important. But what happens when we have these supersized communities that are largely anonymous and constantly changing? Well, there is no community that says, we see you, your marriage, you are married now, and we are going to respect and support that. Or we see that you're an adult now, and we are going to respect and support that. It's almost like it's gotten too big. Too anonymized because of that size. And and I yeah. think we're, we're missing something because of that. For sure. Yeah, learning about rites of passage as a type of ritual and what makes a good one and that, that piece of like the community recognizing 
a big transition in your life or something. It helped me recognize the times in my life when I felt kind of weird. And it's <laughs> because I because I felt like I had gone through a big transition, but that there wasn't like a formal recognition of that. Like I needed Absolutely. like you, you need right. like the people around you to be like, oh, we see this, that something's different now. Like it just and and just having a name for that or being able to name that or categorize that was helpful for me. And then like, go, oh, in hindsight, that's why I had trouble. It it, it harms this transition. Like it slows it down or it, it it makes it harder for you to step into the new phase because that's lacking. I think that's right. And I this is a concern of mine. I, th- I agree with you. I think we need those transition points. I, I suspect this is one of the less talked about reasons why we have this sort of prolonged adolescence. And mm-hmm. now we call it emerging adulthood. Well, it used <laughs> to be you graduate from high school and somewhere around there, we're, we're basically saying you're an adult. You graduate from high school, you're an adult. And we would even religiously mark this, even at secular schools. Even when I was in high school, it wasn't that awful long ago. We had a baccalaureate service Mm. for the graduates. It was basically a Christian-ish service that sort of accompanied graduation that helped mark this as a transition point, a, okay, now you're adults. Well, we don't do that anymore. We pretend, okay, well, maybe graduating from college. Yeah, but not everybody does that. Well, it might take me seven and a half years to get that degree. Well, and it just sort of dribbles on and on. So there is no clear cut. You're an adult now. And our laws don't help that in the United States where you're sort of an adult at 18, but not really because you still can't drink and renting a car is still hard. And there's all this weird stuff that happens. Yeah, it's out of alignment. Whereas in cultural systems where it's like, nope, you've arrived. We've done the ritual. In fact, you've gone out and you've done some really harrowing uh, rite of passage <laughs> that we've all invested very heavily in. And you've come through it on the other side and we branded you <laughs> in some way. There's your tattoo to show you are an adult now. Okay, we're all clear. Now I have to live into this. <laughs> right. There's no going back. There's no, well, right. I don't know. I think I'll take a couple of years and just sort of discover myself. No, you did that on the mountain. It's done. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it isn't, I Even think you're right. Those touchstones feel like, okay, I still have to own as if. I have to, I have to fake it till I make it at least. Yeah. Could be super helpful. a cultural moment where we don't even have to fake it. We can just go, nah, I don't have it together. <laughs> no, nah, I'm going to be a kid for like 20 more, 15, 20 more years, maybe. <laughs> hey, the yeah. face is looking good, parents. It's looking great. <laughs> yeah. My kid's starting preschool on Tuesday. So I'm thinking like, I think we need to do, to do something. I think we need to like, <laughs> I mean, not just for her, like for us too. Like, <laughs> I think there's something out, some kind of ritual. <laughs> so. What's funny is in we've almost... I think because of some intuition that we have that these rituals are important, we've almost overdone it. So this is the other thing about really good rites of passage rituals are few, they're rare, and they're really done up well. But we were like, okay, they're important. So we're going to have a graduation from kindergarten and then first grade and then second grade. And they're like, okay, wait, whoa, whoa, they, they need to be rare. Otherwise, they just start looking silly at a certain point. Yeah, if you have too many. Um, so like, there's a yeah. sweet spot somewhere. <laughs> yeah, which is what Laird is trying to figure out. He's going to do all the research and let us know where the sweet I spot sh- is. I, I'm <laughs> sure glad he's going to get that sorted for us. That'd be great. <laughs> Over the last several decades, uh, an area called the cognitive science of religion 
has been developing lots of theory and research and data about what are some of the sort of across the human species cognitive architecture, the way our brains work, that make us religious in particular ways, that allow for and constrain the way we experience and practice religious belief and behavior. So that work has been really interesting, but it's mostly all pretty academic. All right, what does this have to say about the way we do church? In what ways are we doing church that are counterintuitive and thus problematic? In what ways uh, does our cognitive architecture push us to act and believe in the ways that we know we ought not? It's not so much the cognitive science of religion as it is the cognitive science of idolatry. So would it be accurate to say that like the way that our minds work and are built, like you use the term cognitive architecture, that we are inclined to worship? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. There just simply isn't a culture known Mm -hmm. that doesn't have beliefs and behaviors that are normally characterized as religious. Sure. Now, the term religion is actually... Uh, it's, Harder it's, to define than people yeah, think. And, yes. and it's, it's not a natural kind. It's like saying, trying to define bush. You know, it's like, eh, what is a bush? <laughs> there is no scientific study of bushes. Mm-hmm. I know several of the people, including Justin Barrett, will argue that there really isn't a scientific study of religion because no one can define it. <laughs> um, and so what we study are elements of belief and behavior that are often called religious, as in, say, the, the belief in invisible supernatural agents. Sure. Gods, spirits. Gods, demons, angels, mm-hmm. ghosts, mm-hmm. tree sprites, mm-hmm. you know. I uh, love a good tree sprite. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's uh, uh, your gnomes and your elves. And people believe in these things. We normally classify those beliefs in some ways as as religious beliefs. But what leads that to be ubiquitous among the human family? Even in atheistic, uh, double-down China, the ancestors are worshipped. And so people, yeah, they're still around. Of course they're still around. Those beliefs are there. A surprising percentage of Christians who, even against, like, church teaching, uh, do believe that, you know, ghosts are hanging out. And, and so it's like, wait, ghosts? That doesn't fit Christian theology so well at all anyway. But they, yeah, but I, you know, Brad was in the attic. I know it. I felt it. So we, we've got these things like afterlife beliefs, just ubiquitous. This idea that something continues on. These particular things that are studied in cognitive science of religion normally fit into the rubric of what we call religious yeah, what this is making me think about is just that we are gluttons for finding meaning and purpose in our lives and the lives of the group we're a part of and the lives of just the human race. And in order to do that, you have to create a narrative that can hold those things. And that uh, That is another one of those cognitive architecture pieces. We seem to be teleologically driven. That is this idea that everything is there for a purpose and for a meaning. Why did it rain on my wedding day? Why, why did I fail that test? The famous example by the woman who studied this is asking young children things like, why are rocks pointy? Well, 
It's, it's so that, you know, dinosaurs don't sit on them and break them. That may be an effect of rocks being pointy, but it isn't why rocks are pointy. But no, that's why they are pointy. And, and one of the really interesting things about that research is the discovery that, no, we don't ever get rid of those initial intuitive beliefs. We just write over them. And so if you put someone, even a biologist or a physicist, under cognitive pressure and then ask them questions, they default to the same intuitions they had as children. They're still there. That's super interesting. They're still there. So we've been talking about like these types of beliefs that are usually thought of to be religious, believe in God, spirits, and teleological explanations, purposeful explanations. And another human thing that's generally thought to be religious is ritual, right? Rituals usually under that umbrella of things that go along with religion. And so more specifically, you're talking about some of these things, right? Oh, I have become enamored of ritual. It's where I'm living right now. Find it to be so important and fascinating. And just so many different aspects of our lives, but particularly our religious spiritual lives. But ritual spreads across our, our whole life. Every family has its family rituals. And one of the things that distinguishes really healthy, tightly bonded families from families that are not particularly healthy is the rituals that the family engages in. Those things bind us together. And so that's one of the reasons why, for example, the evangelical megachurch that sort of eschews ritual. Well, of course, they have their rituals. They just tend to not do them very well. And so people say, well, oh, come on. It's a different style, different worship style. You want to say, well, what is it we are hoping to accomplish with the ritual? Mm-hmm. And one of the really important things that ritual does is it creates social bonding. Mm-hmm. It binds us together with other people. Mm-hmm. Justin Barrett has written a book recently, Thriving with Stone Age Minds. That whole understanding that so much of our knee-jerk, unconscious intuitions come from trying to solve adaptive problems that came up about, say, 30,000 years ago when we were all on a permanent camping trip with a small group of people on the African savannah. And how do you solve those problems? Well, one of the problems you need to solve is who are my people? Who do I trust? Who is safe? Who's not? Mm -hmm. One of the key ways we decide who is safe is who's in my family? Who's my kin? Because kin are safe, theoretically. So we have sort of kin recognition circuits, ways we recognize someone as our people. And everyone has experienced this. You meet someone or you see someone and you immediately feel kind of drawn to them. You feel like you like them or they make you vigilant. You're a little hypervigilant around this person. Why is that? Well, one of the things going on is your intuitive sort of kin recognition circuits are flashing. One of the things ritual does is it helps us engage in synchronous behavior with other people. We recognize our kin because they look and act like us. So we're in the group of people who are all standing and sitting and chanting the same way. They're acting like us. It activates that kin recognition circuit. And this is all unconscious. And now we begin thinking like, these people are my family. And so when we talk about how do you help a congregation feel like family, ritual, 
is one of the biggest ways. Get people doing synchronous behavior together. I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan, which is, you know, part of my cynical character to be a Minnesota Vikings fan. But they hit the drum and everyone goes, get the whole stadium, everyone's doing the same thing and faster, 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 faster. And then you end it with saying, skull, this, this Viking chant. <laughs> and it makes you feel at one. And this which, is, and this it, connects with our previous conversation about religion being hard to define because how is sports fandom different than religion? It, it becomes different in terms of the meaning you attach to it. And it becomes different in terms of the regularity of the experience. This gets really complicated because there are two large categories of ritual, imagistic ritual and doctrinal ritual. This is out of the work of a, an anthropologist named Harvey Whitehouse. Ritual animal. I will link in the show notes, as they say. Imagistic ritual are those rituals that were much more common in very small, pre, pre-industrial, maybe even pre-literate uh, hunter-gatherer bands or even agricultural bands, small groups where the religion involves rather tense, extreme rituals, even rites of terror, rites of passage, where the young boy has to go out into the jungle for three or four days by himself and survive, and then he gets back. These imagistic rituals are experiential. Everyone has this very intense experience the meaning given to the ritual is idiosyncratic. Each individual generates their own meaning, but they all have the same experience. And so what binds the group together is a shared, intense, emotional experience. And what happens in that situation is that we, we get then what's known as identity fusion, where people identify so strongly with the group the separation between self and other within the group is not there so much. I am part of these people. People who engage in that kind of ritual and have that kind of experience and that kind of a religious life are much more willing to sacrifice themselves for the group. I mean, if they have an idea and the group has a different idea, they, I, that's not, they can't even conceive of that. I am a part of this group. And so there's, there's this intense identity fusion due to this intense common experiences that they have regularly. And the experiences are distributed among the group so that no single person knows the ritual. This person knows this part of the ritual. This person knows this part. This person knows this part. When we come together, we get the whole ritual. There are no priests. There's hmm. no priestly class. There's no official doctrine. There's no such thing as heresy. Well, this only works in fairly small groups. Is the example you're giving exclusive to small tribal groups? Yes. And, or for example, maybe the Proud Boys. Mm-hmm. Small okay. groups that they have their own initiation rituals. They have their own sort of sense of experience. They engage in identity fusion. They are willing to sacrifice for each other. Their own identity is more about the group they belong to than who they are. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Or other gangs like 
are the gangs. It, gangs, it's all kinds of things. People involved in small terrorist cells. Much the same thing going on. So the other kind of rituals are called doctrinal rituals. Those tend to be much less intense and terrifying. They tend to be repeated over and over and over again. And they're more about helping a large group of people all get on board with what the group believes. You identify with the people in the group after time, after engaging these rituals over and over and over again, but there's not identity fusion. There's a separation of the self and the group. Your individual identity is maintained more thoroughly than with the first type of ritual. A lot of those organizations have pretty nefarious aims, I'd say. It's safe to say. So you'd want them to not think freely. I think for themselves. Whereas, say, in a fairly large organization, mm-hmm. like the Roman Catholic Church, over a billion members, engaging in the rituals of the church regularly, officially, at least every week, is how you confess membership in the body. And the rituals are not extreme and intense, but the rituals tell the story over and over again. And so if you're a good Roman Catholic, you hear the story of Christ's sacrifice every week in the Mass, because that's what the Mass is. Let's, let's do this story over and over again. So that kind of doctrinal ritual is deeply imbued with meaning. Whereas the imagistic ritual, the meaning is we are all part of the same group. I was talking a little bit about this with my spouse and she was saying, well, what makes something a spiritual practice? We all have all kinds of different practices. In the morning, I get up, I make my coffee, I go sit outside, I have a sip of coffee, I sit there and just relax. Is that a spiritual practice? She kind of hated my answer. But my answer is spiritual practice is generated by the meaning that's given to it. So a ritual is a spiritual practice if it's spiritual to you? Well, and so here's, here's where then the Christian church, as a doctrinal church, says we don't get to create our own idiosyncratic meaning that we plop onto our practices. And this is one of the funny things. If you read the psychology of religion literature and they try to define a spiritual experience, ultimately it comes down to a spiritual experience is an experience that the experiencer defines as spiritual. That's the definition of a spiritual experience. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. But, but for the Christian church, It's like, yes, but we have a community of faith that then has to sort of weigh in. Sure. So if you have a pastor who says, I had a profound spiritual experience and God told me to divorce my wife and then take these three young women as my concubines, the church is going to say, no, God didn't. No. (laughs) Yeah. God did not say that. Mm -hmm. And because we have a doctrinal religion, the doctrinal faith, where there are doctrines. We have a sacred text, a priestly class, we have authorities and some hierarchy. Spiritual experiences then become spiritual in the light of the community. And so are all spiritual experiences sort of equal? Well, uh, no, they're not. This might be a little bit of a detour, but you've been talking about rituals and emphasizing the, what they do in relation to group identity, you talked about how this is using these cognitive mechanisms 
from way back in the old days that were developed to help us discern who's safe and who's not. And of course, we all associate with groups and it's not bad. (laughs) I don't think anyone would say it's bad to just it have people who are you consider your people like these are my people you know you might have more than one right you've got your your church community your fellow sports fans your quilting club whatever all these different groups that we identify with but you could see how there would be an overly like overgroupishness and a lot of what you talked about is something that gets a lot of mainstream press nowadays talking about cognitive bias and how we need this sense of kinship to be healthy but that can get out of hand where the the outsider is villainized or stereotyped or all these other things. So um, could you just say a few words on, on that? Absolutely. And this is the current project other than this book project that's been like, I got to get this thing done, is a project digging into what approaches and ways of doing ritual can help both the dual thing of create tight social bonding within the community of faith. These are my people. This is my family. While at the same time, be invitational to invite strangers in. How do we do that? I can't answer that. That's what the project's about is because we know it is possible. We know there are religious groups that are just phenomenally invitational. One of the examples Justin gave me once was, well, think about the Franciscans. The the Franciscans are remarkably hospitable and invitational. Same with the Benedictines, these religious orders within the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, but they're definitely, they're their own group. And when you say invitational, you're not just talking about Oh, hey, they'll invite you to church. Hospitality is a good word. There's never a sense of you are our enemy. No, it's we see you as our friend and our sibling. Yeah, it should be like going over to your friend's house who has the best parents. Like if when you're a kid and you go over for a sleepover and while you're there, you feel part of the family, you know, you're not part of the family, but they make you feel so included and welcome. That's one of the things where having a ritual in church helps you get a sense of the rest of the people in this congregation are part of my family. Even when, even if they don't look anything like you. And so I remember going to Uganda and we were going to what was in one of the slums of Kampala, a Sudanese exile church. So these are exiled Sudanese Christians in Uganda where they weren't particularly welcomed in Uganda. This was a group of just poor, very persecuted people. And their church service was extremely welcoming to us. But here's the thing. I cannot tell you when I've had to jump up and down more for longer in my lifetime because they do junk dancing when they're singing their songs. The music portion of the service was about two hours because it was, of course, a four-hour church service, uh, intermittent. And boy, the music starts going and everyone is jumping up and down. Well, they loved it when the uh, Muzungus, the the white folks, were jumping up and down too. It's like you are one of us. 
we engage in the same ritual together and we're related now. <laughs> At some point that I feel myself being grabbed and I'm lifted up and I'm marched around the church on the shoulders of a whole bunch of people as we're jumping out and they're jumping and I'm jumping and we're singing away. And it's just. That's incredible. It's, it's church. Yeah. But for them, I mean, clearly the jump dancing is part of their ritual. I mean, they don't have church without a lot of jump dancing. And it's how they both invite and recognize Kim. That's cool. You knew meaning to the dance parties that we have as a family in the living room with my toddler. <laughs> if you want to have a tightly bound family, synchronized movement and sound. You should sing together and dance together. We're going to institutionalize it. Yeah. My wife and I recognize that we need to dance in the kitchen regularly. Because synchronized movement and doing purposeful activity together is effective. And again, it, it works down below. Unconsciously, yeah. So, yeah, so we've been highlighting a lot the connection between rituals and group cohesion, group bonding. What other effects on us as human beings do rituals have or mm -hmm. spiritual practices, if we want to be more specific, more on an individual level? I mentioned earlier, one of the issues in cognitive science of religion is that it points out stuff that we believe and do that we should not. We have these internal, deep intuitions about the way the world works and should work. So here's an example. One of them is that we have just a knee-jerk automatic intuition that if you're dealing with a very powerful other from whom you need something, you need to bring that other gifts, social exchange. And so grace runs directly counter to our intuition of social exchange. And that intuition is just, I hate to say hardwired because then people are going to say, oh, there's like, there's a part of your brain that the neuro, no, 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 no. But we are strongly predisposed towards social exchange. How do we then help Christians begin to grasp the notion of grace. This is something we have to change an intuition. We have these maturationally natural intuitions. It's not like we're born with them, but we mature into them. And every human on the planet in a normally developing society, it, they develop these intuitions. The only way to tweak those is by a fairly intense, not intense in terms of individually emotional events, but a very, very regular ritualized repetition of a different story that over the years and even the decades can change their intuition. We talk about spiritual practices and people, one of the phrases, you, you might create different habits of the heart. That's what we're talking about. And so ritual and private and public spiritual practices, essentially tweaking our intuitions more to the, the gospel. This is kind of me thinking out loud here and maybe a half-baked thought, but it seems a lot of times in, even in popular culture, that you yeah. have this idea of God as just as this harsh judging God that Oh, before you're welcomed in, you got to 
get your life right, it's easier to believe in a kind of a God that's mad at you or is wanting you to shape up than a God that is unconditionally loving. Like that is actually harder to believe in. And that's, there's some evidence, at least some strong theories about the development of moralistic religions and high gods, big gods who care about our behavior was a part of humanity getting together into larger and larger groups and state societies almost need to have eyes watching. And the statement is watched people are better people. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a theory of Aaron Noranzan, and mm-hmm. he's got a book I called Big Gods. Mm-hmm. But it, he's recently been challenged by Harvey Whitehouse, the ritual mm-hmm. guy, who said, no, it's not so much that the moralizing God is watching and wants you to be good as the communal rituals help introduce and create sort of community standards of behavior that are reinforced regularly in the story of the ritual. Plus, we bind ourselves to the community. We identify more with the community values. Yeah. I say we need ritual in the church and in our families and in our communities to help connect us to each other and to see each other as kin, but also then to create deeper shared value set. Right. Um, and so that, that's part of what that does. This could get us into a whole conversation about conditions for change. Once you are welcomed in and treated with hospitality and start to believe in this unconditionally loving God and this unconditionally loving community, aren't those better conditions for change than one that's asking you to change all this laundry list of things about you. And and another one of the things that sort of ritual and spiritual practice does is it affects our memory. And so we want to both remember the propositional truths of our, we value, but Protestants, especially evangelical Protestants and Reformed Christians, I kind of identify as, as Reformed nowadays, they're all about the propositions and the doctrine. They all, oh, they love that. You, you got to memorize those Bible verses. And it's not how it works. <laughs> it's, it's not how it works. Plato was wrong. It's very Platonist. And, and at one point, Plato had said to know the good is to do the good. And so obviously wrong. <laughs> I know so many goods and I don't do them. I know good. I know good. <laughs> doesn't, I mean do. I, doesn't mean I do it. Yeah. And so how do you know the good in a way that actually directs the internal voice in your mm-hmm. head? Yeah. And the internal sort of dispositions of your will. Drilling down so that it's not just what's called semantic memory. I know the mm-hmm. facts, but procedural memory, muscle memory. Only the muscle we're talking about is our dispositions and our will. How do you drill that down? Again, it's through regular spiritual practice, particularly ritualized practice, but also prayer. You sent a question about, are all spiritual practices the same? And it's like, oh, no, <laughs> they're not. <laughs> but it all depends on the community into which you're doing them, the meaning you assign them. But let's say, for example, prayer. There's a fascinating book by Tanya Lerman. She's an anthropologist at Stanford called When God Talks Back. Mm. 
Yeah. It's great because she just embeds herself in a charismatic vineyard fellowship for several years. She goes to the Bible studies. She joins a prayer group. She goes to worship. She goes on a mission trip. She just really lives in the group. And every week she's going to Bible studies and going to prayer meetings. Yeah, because it's one thing to like study a group behavior from an outsider perspective, but it doesn't give you the whole picture, right? If yeah. you're, so she really and wanted to become an insider, she, even though she didn't identify as a Christian. No, you yeah. didn't identify as a Christian. In the book, she ends with this lovely last few pages in the book. She says, so can I say that these people aren't actually hearing the voice of God? No, I can't say that. So interesting. One of the big questions of the book is, these are not crazy people. They're intelligent, many of them highly educated, and they say they hear the voice of God. How is this possible? And she, you know, is this totally secular, agnostic at best, anthropologist from Stanford saying, normally you would think someone who says, I hear the voice of God, well, they're missing their medications. But no, so she spends all this time trying to understand. And one of the things she comes up with is that part of what's involved is the training of theory of mind, one's ability to have a sense of what someone else is thinking. We all have to develop a theory of mind when we're growing up, when we acknowledge that other people don't have the same things in their head as I do. And it's possible for other people to think something that isn't true. Yeah. It's possible for them to know something I don't and for me to know something they don't. I mean, children the age of three don't really have this. It's one of the things I try to tell parents. Your three-year-old isn't lying. They're incapable of lying because they don't know that you don't know what they know. You have to understand that other people's brains are different than yours before you can learn to lie. So five-year-olds, okay, they're getting there. (laughs) Yeah, But a three-year-old, no. What Tanya Lerman says is, okay, so we develop this theory of mind based on the evidence we get when we're talking to another person. We see their face, we hear their tone of voice, we hear what they say back, body language, context. All of that helps us understand that, you know, right now I can get a sense that, oh, am I boring, Sari? Or is this interesting to Sari? And I, I watch you to figure that out. So I'm reading your mind with these clues. And the more you get to know someone, the better you get at it because you see notice patterns or you're like, oh, this person gives me these types of cues or that type. So this is a nod or and, this is the eye contact person. Pretty soon with your spouse or our best friend, you're completing each other's sentences. Oh, yeah. And there's so much between my husband and I, especially spending so much time yeah. together during all this yep. COVID. We don't even have to say anything. <laughs> and we just do to get dinner on the table or we know what the other is doing and what they're not going to do. <laughs> So the question is then, how do we hear the voice of God or feel the presence of Mm. God? Because the evidence is different. Totally. And so what Lerman did was she studied these vineyard people to try to figure out what are they doing with their theory of mind that they believe they're hearing the voice of God. And so she actually did an experiment and had people randomly assigned to three different groups doing different kinds of prayer exercises for six or eight weeks. And at the end of the six or eight weeks, okay, which group was more likely to say they heard the voice of God in their prayers? There's a difference. Hmm. Ignatian prayer exercises led to the, the highest incidence of 
That was number one? That was number one. Over, over Alexio Divina, over other, you know, you know, the practice of putting yourself into a particular situation in scripture and spending time hearing the birds, smelling what it smells like, you know, just imaginatively placing yourself on that hill on by the Sea of Galilee, listening to the Sermon on the Mount and very carefully training the imagination to put yourself in that place. Yeah. What it did for these folks is just sensitize them to what they claimed was the voice of God. So interesting. The, the other thing I want to mention here is we know that there are different kinds of prayer. One of the taxonomies of prayer with, that I like using because it has some good evidence behind it is a taxonomy of prayer that says, well, there are prayers of confession, prayers of adoration, prayers of supplication, prayers of thanksgiving, and then what's called prayers of reception. And that those five different kinds of prayers, they seem to be separated from each other and they result in very different kinds of prayer lines. What the research on that, these are small effects. This isn't blazing, but small effects is that the more sort of mature someone is described as a Christian, the more actively and often they spend time in devotional practices, the more their prayer life tilts towards adoration, thank, thanksgiving, and reception, and away from supplication and confession. That is, their prayer life tilts away from asking for stuff and more towards Gratitude listening and, listening. and praising. Wow. Do you know uh, who did those studies? A guy named Kevin Ladd. He's got done a lot of the prayer stuff, hasn't he? Ladd and Spilka, they were the ones who did the initial factor analysis and came up with the measure of these five different prayer types. We'll link to some of Kevin's work in the show notes too here. There was a question here about effect on character formation. And I think what you're talking about is character formation, right? Increased gratitude and in at least within the prayer life, but I can't imagine that not extending outside of the prayer life too. The thing you'd want to add, because we got a specific question specifically about singing. We've talked quite a bit though about how that that forms group cohesion. I don't know if there's anything you want to add. Your ad anecdote was great about the jump dancing. <laughs> singing does some really important things. Evolutionarily, it's probably been around at least, you know, 250,000 years. There's an argument in the ethno-paleomusicologists about whether which came first, singing and music or language. Wow. It goes way back. And again, every culture's got some form of this. So rhythm, and rhythm is pretty, pretty key involved. The beating of the drum, that's the first musical instrument and every culture had drums. Rhythm and pitch and timber and dynamic range, these things do things physiologically to us. They create tension and then release it. When there's a good, good, strong beat going, people's brains and their whole nervous system is primed to move. There's a tension that builds to move to that beat. So it's like, if you get a strong beat going and you look at a crowd that's hearing the beat, you just can't see anyone who isn't moving at all. And if you do, you just don't trust that person. You know? So what the heck, what's going on? I say, I say music fundamentally has four functions. 
One is it's a very powerful social function. And that helps you identify your group. It helps you create cohesion within the group. You can express or declare group membership with the songs you sing. I, I tell you, get some teenagers together who have never met. And that's one of the things they ask is, who do you listen to? And that's, what's your music? I'm up the age where sharing mixtapes was pretty intimate. It's like you're sharing your music with someone. I was in the tail end of that, of someone burning a CD for me, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, if you like the music I like, that's a good sign that we can, we are connected. We also know that music has very strong emotional functions, both emotional expression and emotional regulation and exploration. You listen to the right song and it helps you express an emotion you had trouble expressing. It helps you understand an emotion that you're having that you didn't get, but it helps regulate emotions too. Listening to sad songs sometimes helps the sad. Which is why it makes sense that for teenagers, it's so, yep. music is so powerful. Yeah. That's usually when you find like your music, like you start finding, you move away from just what your parents yeah. listen to you and know. you get really into a particular into subgenre. Yeah. Like and, and, it, and it allows you to create a niche and a community. Yeah. Uh-huh. But it also has very powerful cognitive functions. I mean, for Pete's sake, the other day I needed to go through the alphabet and I'm singing the song in my head, A, B, C, D. It's still freaking there. But I learned this when I was four, maybe, I don't know, three. And that song is how I know the alphabet. So it has an incredible memory functions. You, when you add rhythm, and pitch these different modalities, you've got a pattern and you create a pattern and we are pattern recognizing creatures. Right. And, and a so lot of us have seen those videos online where it's like someone with severe dementia that seems totally detached from the present and from reality. And you play music from their generation and they'll just like, like come alive. It's like yeah. they're there again. Yeah. We recognize patterns and music creates patterns. And so it can take ideas and concepts that are abstract, stick them into a pattern. And now once again, it has a memory function that drills it down. And so the theology of our hymns becomes our theology. It's a reminder of our own commitments and the commitments of the group. It can also distract us from unwanted thoughts. It has a distracting function that then reduces anxiety. And then the fourth thing, it has arousal-related functions where it, it helps us to regulate our own emotions and it reduces anxiety or it can ratchet us up and in- increase tension. If I've got a lot of work to do, I'm not going to play Brahms. I- I'm going to play Led Zeppelin. So, and that gets me going. There's I- a real trend of uh, these playlists or YouTube videos that are like, it's like sounds for productivity where sometimes it's just like synthesizer type sounds and stuff. And I wondered if there's actual science behind oh, that. I mean, or, or for deep focus is another deep thing. Focus. Yeah. yeah, it's that sense that it's enough distracting that it keeps all those other voices that are always bugging us in our head, but not so distracting. Right. That the thing we're trying to do, it's like, you know, before yeah. you call, when I'm kind of looking through some notes, I'm listening to some, the, essentially the soundtrack from the movie Arrival, which is just Ooh. moody. I just, it's, it's yeah, I love it's that movie. Yeah. So music does all these things. You add it then into a spiritual context and it has a lot of power for spiritual formation. 
But here, I'm, I don't want to be accused of being a cultural snob. I love rock and roll church. I play electric guitar in our church and I love it when I get to crank it up and add a lot of distortion. That's just the most fun thing ever. But the bands need to turn down the volume because people need to hear each other singing in order for the music of the church to serve its social binding function. Because when we hear each other singing, now the music is making us a group. Whereas if it's essentially a concert that we're all attending, the, the social binding function is greatly reduced. It's one of those things where even when I used to be a worship leader, some of the most powerful worship moments are when you get to verse three of the hymn and you cut the instruments. Capella, this is just us. And it's this binding thing because we are all engaged in synchronous music production together. Words to the song do matter. Worship songs that are all about me, 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 me may actually be counterproductive to what we're trying to do in church. Right. Yeah. But the words are in some ways less important than the group worship process. But if we create churches where it's, again, a large group of individuals all worshiping individually just in the same room, we're undermining the purpose of all those rituals. Right, to bind the, bind the group identity and also make us more altruistic to the outsider. Absolutely. I wonder if the loud worship band thing, yeah, maybe it's a generational thing with the rock and roll and stuff. But also I wonder if it's like, oh, then people won't be self-conscious about their singing voice. And which kind of links to one of the other questions I sent you about different types of people and spiritual practices. Some people, like, I love singing. I'm a singer and I, the singing part of church is like one of my favorite parts. But for a lot of people, it's not. For some people, it's kind of uncomfortable. What you're kind of saying, though, is that everybody has the cognitive stuff that makes singing in a group powerful and effective as a spiritual practice, even if you have some self-consciousness about it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I love standing and singing next to my brother-in-law in church, who can't hear a rhythm and couldn't carry a tune. But if, if everyone is singing, he'll sing too. Yeah. And I, I just, it makes me so, it's like standing next to Bob Dylan or something in church. It's just, it's so great. I just love, it makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. And you know, if everybody's doing something, it becomes not weird pretty quickly, right? Especially in a big group, <laughs> to give an example in Portland, there's a group of people that yearly get together and ride their bikes in the nude. Uh, and it's like thousands of people. But I've heard from people who've participated in this. It's something I never thought I would do. And But then suddenly you, you see this huge group of people and there's thousands of people riding their bike na naked. And it seems like not so weird. <laughs> so that's a really maybe kind of an extreme example. But maybe if someone told you, you have to go to church and you're going to have to jump a lot. And you're like, I don't know. But then when you're there and everybody's doing it, you Everyone's know. Jumping, like, it's like, okay, as long as my knees hold out, I'm, I'm you know, bouncing. <laughs> I'm doing this. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the, the Portland ride is in, in some ways an extreme ritual. Because of the way it breaks, breaks social norms. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole study of what's called extreme rituals. Demetrius Zagalitas. Yes. Zagalitas. Thank you. Yeah, at, at University of Connecticut. Just he has a new book out as well on ritual at that and his work is fascinating. And one of the things that I think is just 
most fascinating is he did physiological studies of people engaged in firewalking, which is pretty extreme ritual. And just measuring their heart rate while they're firewalking, it's like it's dangerously high. For the spectators, people who were related or a part of the firewalkers community, their heart rate was synchronized with the firewalker and almost as high and in the city. The spectators who were not, who were just like tourists, were not synchronized. And so there's a sense where if someone is engaging in an extreme ritual, the people who are part of that person's community experience it with them. And so I'm thinking about in Baptist traditions where you got to get someone up on stage in that goopy robe and in that tank of water. And they're being baptized in front of the whole congregation. And everyone in the congregation who has been baptized and is a part of that experiences it. I'm not Baptist. I'm definitely a sprinkle little water when that little baby kind of person. But I get the power of that and how it helps, again, introduce someone to the community and bind them to the community better. When I hear about extreme rituals, I think, oh, yeah, these are people who what engaging in that ritual does for them is that at least for a time helps them feel like they really belong. Yeah. Part of something bigger. Part of something bigger. And we yearn for that. We are phenomenally social and in ways that even our nearest chimpanzee relatives, they're social animals, but they're not the, the complexity of their social organization. And the requirement that they can survive alone. We absolutely cannot. Humans alone die. I have to say, it's like sometimes learning about the science of something might have a de-enchanting effect. But I feel like with ritual stuff, it that makes it more enchanting. It's like, but that's crazy. Like, that's insane. You start realizing, oh, this is so important. And this is one of those things that we've discovered in our family. Things my wife and I didn't know we had rituals for. But our children, once they grew up, if we tried to change anything about how we do Christmas or how <laughs> we do this summer vacation, uh, it's like, no, wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. We have to do it the way our family does it. We didn't even know that we had this ritual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just happened naturally. And it took on, it took on deep meaning for them. It took on meaning. It's, it's sort of, this is what we do. This is who we are. And for our children, it, it's, it makes them feel safe, even as 35-year-olds with their own kids. Yeah, there is that safety and security element to it, too. Well, cool. You're such a great resource. This is a little bit not strictly connected to what we've been talking about, but someone asked about vulnerability and if the psychological concept of vulnerability and social psychology, if there's any work being done there, just working from my own experience, vulnerability in church settings is often pretty emphasized. I guess it depends what your context is. California, evangelical churches, they're like, let's talk about our feelings, everyone. But sometimes that's a little bit forced and you're expected to have this level of vulnerability that isn't always safe or comfortable. But I don't know if you have any comments on that. Well, and there's there are several sort of literatures around things like this. And I'm only marginally familiar with the literature in 
both group therapy and group work settings. But there is a literature of particularly, is it a good idea for a leader to be vulnerable? Yeah, I was going to bring that up too, because pastors have a range of what they think about that. And usually it's there's more vulnerability from the congregation that's expected than from the leader, because there's an idea that you want your leader to be kind of a little bit better, a little superhuman or? Well, you need your leader to have worked through it. Mm -hmm. If your leader is currently racked with doubts and has no idea really what to do next, you don't necessarily want to follow this person. Mm -hmm. And so there's a sense where in Christian settings, it becomes a little twitchy because on the one hand, we're supposed to all admit we are broken and in need of grace. God's strength is made perfect by our weakness or our weakness is perfected in God's strength. It's like we are weak, he is strong. But we need our leaders to have experienced that, gone through the conversion, spent their time weeping, and now they are being led by God. There's a sense that it's hard to follow a leader who is weeping in front of the church and saying, I don't know what to do. Like, maybe you need to step down from leadership then. And so part of what this fits into is in the cognizance of religion, there's a whole literature on costly signaling and what's called creds and creds. Creds are credibility enhancing displays and creds are credibility undermining displays. I feel like I'm going to let you finish nerd, but <laughs> I have something to say. No, I, I was just thinking while you're talking that small doses of vulnerability is a healthier and credibility building display of vulnerability. But if you hold it in for a long time and have the mask up of no problems until one day you have a meltdown and it's this huge display of, I don't know what to do. My life is actually a mess. That has the, that's the opposite effect. The opposite effect. And that's what you see. You see that pretty often with burnout and stuff. One of the pieces of research, this is sort of on the side, but I think this is fascinating. Research on people who engage in self-effacing conversations. Say, oh yeah, well, I'm kind of stupid about those things. If someone who is in a position of power makes self-effacing comments, it increases their power. But if someone is in a subordinate position, makes self-effacing comments, it decreases their power. Because... If someone is in a position of authority and power and they make these self-effacing comments to the right sort of right degree, it's like being vulnerable enough to convince people, you know, I'm, I'm one of you and I understand and I'm not stuck in myself and I'm not hiding behind a mess. Um, and so there's a certain amount of being vulnerable that increases authenticity. Because this again, then, okay, let's go back to the African Savannah and our small hunter-gatherer band. Every single member has to contribute or people die. So the real danger in a small band like that is a freeloader. And it's one of the reasons that there's some researchers who believe that's why humans developed the ability to reason was to find freeloaders because it's such a danger to the group. And so authenticity now is really important to us. We, we need our leaders to be authentic because if they're not authentic, they're dangerous. How do we know if someone is authentic? 
They engage in both costly signaling and credibility enhancing displays. Costly signaling has to do with doing some behavior or saying something that costs you, but you wouldn't do it if you don't actually believe and aren't actually committed. Shows, look, I am one of you. I'm going to give up this or that. I'm going to fast. I'm going to engage in some painful ritual. I'm going to do something potentially embarrassing. I'm going to not be paid as much as I could get someplace else because I'm going to serve you here. I'm going to signal that I'm committed. Therefore, I'm engaging this cost and I'm paying this cost. And that signals my authenticity. And then we trust and are willing to follow people like that. And those are related then to credibility enhancing displays where someone says and does things that makes us feel like, yep, this person is real. I think to an extent, vulnerability, which is costly, fits into this signaling. But if you have some pastor who stands up and says, I have a confession to make to the congregation, I've been deeply involved in pornography for the last several years, and it's still a problem, and I need you to pray for me. Ooh, oh, you don't want to mention that until it's no longer an issue. So there's, there's a sense that vulnerability can actually then be a credibility undermining display rather than a credibility enhancing display. Interesting. Those are some interesting connections, Laird. Those are some interesting moves you made there. <laughs> You're good at this. You really have a heart, I can tell, for utilizing your your psych education to help the church out in really practical ways. I think we have ranged rather widely. Oh, yeah. We got some good meaty stuff there. It's really good. I can't wait for the book. Well, me either. Me, me, me too. 